Hello. Welcome to Discovering Jazz, where you and I together discover great music, picking up information to keep jazz old and new alive. My name is Larry Sademan, here in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, sponsored by Peterborough Independent Podcasters. Today, talking about what has been claimed to be the first major international jazz festival in North America. Where was it? The city where I was born and raised and now living again, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. The population at the time the festival started, 1980, was just over half a million, so it was a relatively small city. We're going to be hearing from the festival's founder, Mark Fazy, shortly. The festival got off to an auspicious start as the first concert, scheduled for August 17th to feature Oscar Peterson and Joe Pass, led to Peterson on the day of the concert, cancelling. At the last minute, Joe Pass assembled some other musicians, and the result was a wonderful concert. And although refunds were offered, very few took advantage of that offer. This opening night disaster turned into a win for the festival and became a model for the resiliency of Jazz City being able to survive in some form for 24 years, despite so many setbacks, and then morph into a smaller but still successful festival, which continues to this day. Let's hear some music from one of those musicians who saved opening night by gathering this group of friends to put on what apparently turned out to be a spectacular concert guitarist Joe Pass, and the appropriately titled composition, Just Friends. Thank you. 
blast from his I Remember Charlie Parker album of 1979. Here's Jazz City's founder, Mark Vasey, with whom I had the pleasure of speaking this past July. We were the first major international jazz festival in North America. Even before Montreal? Montreal in 1980 was a local Montreal-based event. No, no touring artists, no international artists. They didn't start doing that until 1981. And, and by 82, because Montreal is Montreal, you know, they were, they were the major event in, in, in Canada, if not in North America. Um, even the Americans, you know, the Newport Festival in, in New York, they didn't bring in any Europeans or Australians or all, all American based. They didn't hire any Canadians. For years and years and years. So in, from ni- 1980 and 1981, Edmonton, from an international point of view, was Jazz City. We had we had writers uh, coming to to Edmonton from Japan, from from New York, from France, and from Great Britain. Jazz City's first year boasted some amazing and prominent jazz musicians. Eddie Cleanhead Vinson, Phil Woods, Jack DeJeanette, Toshiko Akiyoshi, Art Ensemble of Chicago, Chick Corea and Gary Burton, Al Jarreau, Kenny Wheeler and Ralph Towner, and Sonny Rollins were just a few of them. Here's a Sonny Rollins recording where he plays the Lyricon, an electronic wind instrument, from a 1979 album released shortly before his appearance at Jazz City in 1980. Most of the musicians on that album, called Don't Ask ended up coming with them.
Sonny Rollins, a tune called Tai Chi, with Rollins and the Lyricon, Mark Soskin, piano, Jerome Harris, electric bass, Al Foster drums, and Bill Summers, conga and percussion. More about the Jazz City beginnings. Here's Mark Vasey. I'd, I'd be curious, Mark, to know about just, just some of the stories and some of the challenges you had in getting that festival off the ground. Well, of course, it couldn't have happened without support from really three levels of government. The Alberta Culture Department that we had in in the 70s, most of the 70s, and, and the early 80s was instrumental in, in bringing on board both the federal government, some major sponsors like Air Canada. We had Air Canada as a major contributor for the first three or four years uh, and the city of Edmonton and and it was it was it was instrumental in you know, you know the province was in, instrumental in really helping to create that economic environment that would allow us to do our our art, artistic work and uh, and we didn't really have a model, a jazz society that was that was that was building these events over the over the first few years. We, we really didn't have a model to follow. Uh, you know, we didn't investigate how 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 New York went, how San Francisco went. After some more music, we're going to be hearing more from the Jazz City Festival founder and artistic director Mark Vasey. I mentioned Kenny Wheeler a Toronto-born composer and master of the trumpet and flugelhorn who is based in the UK. He was a feature performer during that first year of Jazz City, and he was billed along with Ralph Towner, but I don't know who else was on the bill with him. Here's one of his compositions from his Double W album of 1983. It's called W.W., and much of it is a duet with tenor saxophonist Michael Brecker. Kenny Wheeler.
Jenny Wheeler on trumpet with Mike Brecker, tenor sax, John Taylor, piano, Dave Holland on bass, and Jack DeJanette on drums. That first year of the Jazz City Festival ended up turning a small profit. The second year also had some huge challenges. Let's hear Mark talk about it. With the success that we had in Edmonton, we, we decided we would branch out and, and, and produce an event. We produced a five-day event in Vancouver with, with uh, Freddie Hubbard and McCoy Tyner and oh, a bunch of other people, you know, uh, uh, Vancouver artists. The profit that we achieved in Edmonton in 1980 was swallowed up by the, the, the mm. loss we had in Vancouver in 1981 because we ran simultaneously. Richard White was the was the manager out there in, in, in Vancouver, and we were also producing the Jazz City Festival at the same time, so it was a bit of a circuit for us. But we also had a we also had a had an Air Canada strike at the same time, a postal strike, some other kind of strike. So we couldn't we couldn't really do any advertising. We 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 couldn't do any mail outs or any any uh, real promotion in Vancouver, particularly because of the strikes. It was brutal. We had to fly people up from San Francisco to Seattle, drive down to Seattle, pick people up, drive them up across wow. the border. <laughs> As you can see where the chances of imploding were pretty were pretty serious in 1981. But we recovered from that in uh, 1982, which was one of our most successful years ever. It was the second year that I started volunteering for Jazz City. That was 1981. My job being the liaison between the press and the musicians, helping mostly to set up interviews. I had a few memorable experiences from that year, both in terms of my interactions with the performers and in terms of the concerts I got to hear. I can recall, for example, seeing McCoy Tyner and being blown away by the man's power on the piano. I can't remember who was playing with him as my focus was on his playing. Let me play a something by McCoy Tyner from around that period. This is from his 1981 album, La Leyenda de la Hora. And while no recording can duplicate the power of seeing him in person, this one comes close. And while my memory of the specifics are hazy, I'm pretty sure this was a piece that he played at that Jazz City concert. It's called Walk Spirit, Talk Spirit. McCoy Tyner.
walk spirit, talk spirit, McCoy Tyner. And just watching that man's left hand was, was, was as amazing as hearing it. Some amazing musicians with him too on that recording, such as Bobby Hutcherson on vibes, Paquito de Rivera saxophone, and uh, Hubert Law's flute. As Mark says, they recovered for the third year, 1982, but even then there were some challenges. With their main venue closed, that was the Jubilee Auditorium, they had to make do with an alternative space for their main concerts. The organization that the city formed called Summerfest uh, brought in a big European-style circus tent from, uh, from Ajax, Ontario. Yes. And I remember uh, seeing John McLaughlin. John McLaughlin and the Lebec sisters. Right. Yeah, and uh, it was a it was a workable space, but John McLaughlin didn't like it. He didn't, he hated it. Uh, plus the fact that the power that we had was from a generator. The generator, uh, the power would fluctuate, so John's tuning would would be oh, would fluctuate gee. with the, with the uh, with the generator. So he was. He was angry the whole show. The whole time he was here, he was angry. (laughs) Let's get a sense of what John McLaughlin was recording around that time. McLaughlin was at the forefront of jazz fusion that combined what was called acid rock with progressive jazz. But he also played music that was almost classical, especially when he played with his wife at the time, Katia Labec, who was part of a French piano duo with her sister, Marielle. They both performed at the festival, and Katya performed with John McLaughlin. Also with him at that concert were keyboardist Francois Courturier, drummer Tommy Campbell, and bassist Jean-Paul Celia. Here are all five of them, along with masterful guitarist Paco de Lucia and violinist Augustin Dumay, playing a McLaughlin composition called Waltz for Katia, off the 1981 Belo Horizonte album. Thank you. 
I could be wrong, but I believe that's Paco de Lucia starting off the piece. Then McLaughlin comes in later doing the more jazz stuff. Mark Fazy mentioned that he had invited jazz writers from international publications as guests of the festival. One of them, who I remember from 1982, was Takafumi Okuma from Japan, and he was the editor-in-chief of Swing Journal. And with him, he brought a delightful fellow from the U.S., a famous jazz photographer named Patrick Heinley. Patrick ended up kindly taking a few photos of me when I was interacting with certain musicians. And I have a photo of uh, myself talking with John McLaughlin in that circus tent. I've posted it in the podcast description in case you're interested. Patrick subtitled it, Larry Sabin gives John McLaughlin guitar tuning tips, or something like that. Yes, for me, those three years that I was involved with Jazz City have become a very memorable part of my life. Another memorable concert I saw in that second year, 1981, was the great Etta James. While I believe she had a reputation for being difficult, my own experience was nothing but positive. Our jazz festival headquarters was a room in a major downtown hotel, and Etta James was staying in one of the rooms. She had indicated that she did not want any interviews. Being one of the two people in charge of arranging interviews, I I was ready to follow that until one woman who was writing for, I believe, an independent publication and was also a musician herself, approached me begging for an interview with Etta James, as she was such a fan. So I took a chance, and I knocked on her room door. She said, come in. And there she was, sitting on her bed, and when I made a pitch for this interview... Etta James said, bring her in. That night, her performance was wonderful. Great voice, great songs, and amazing energy. Here's a sample of what she sounded like in 1981 from a live concert in San Francisco in March 1981. Jimmy Reed's Baby, What You Want Me To Do.
Etta James. Back to Mark Fazy, talking about those early years of Jazz City in Edmonton. Here, talking about the great Chet Baker, who I remember being at the festival and sort of hanging around with a lot of the staff in the hospitality room of the hotel. At the time, I didn't know who he was. Here's a fascinating Chet Baker recollection from Mark Fazy about those two years that he appeared. Yeah, Chet Baker was, he was at the festival in 81 and 82, yeah. I believe the years were, and he was a, he was one of these cases, uh, at the second year he didn't bring a trumpet, he didn't have a trumpet with him, so he, he I lent him my trumpet, but in order to make sure that I had it at the end of the day, we had to take it back from him every evening, and that was the year as well where we had to lock him, we had to have the the Weston Hotel reversed the locks, so you locked it from the outside, so he couldn't get out. Oh. Because the uh, the first year he he disappeared for two days. He mm-hmm. just disappeared. He was playing at the the club right by the the, the, the Citadel Theater there upstairs. There was a restaurant, um, and uh, he was supposed to be playing there, and he he disappeared for two days. And we somebody somebody found him, not one of our 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 people or our staff or our volunteers or anything, but somebody else. And they called the called the jazz festival and said, "I think Chet Baker's over here." Hmm. <laughs> we had to send somebody in, and that was an interesting, challenging. Uh, and we had we really had no idea. I'd never met Chet. I'd heard stories, of course, over the years, and. And of course, was had long been a fan of his of his trumpet playing, but especially in the just before he died. I mean, he really was at his peak just before he died, around the time he was he was here he, in terms of in terms of playing and, and consistency, and mostly in Europe. He spent a lot of time in Europe, which is which of course is where he died as well. Here's an illustration of Chet Baker's playing during those later years from a 1988 album called My Favorite Songs, The Last Great Concert, John Lewis's Django.
Chet Baker with the Radio Symphony Hanover and NDR Big Band, Herb Geller on alto sax, John Schroeder guitar, Walter Norris piano, Lucas Lindholm bass, and Aj Tangard drums, Django. Let's play one more artist whose concert I heard during that third year of Jazz City in Edmonton. It was a concert like nothing I'd ever heard before. I wasn't sure at the time if I liked it or not, but I listen to this man's music now and I feel much more positively disposed. A fusion group led by electric guitarist James Blood Almer, a 1982 album called Black Rock. This track is called Open House. And next week... More about Jazz City, featuring more interesting memories from founder and artistic director Mark Fazy. And I'll also include more about uh, just how Edmonton ended up getting on the map for jazz so that they could actually pull off such an international jazz festival that could survive for as long as it did. And I'm going to talk about an Edmonton icon, blues icon named Big Miller as well. This is Larry Sademan saying bye for now. <laughs>